All right. Welcome to another episode of Survival Mode. I have the pleasure of introducing a gentleman, Craig Sitkowski, and he was a 9-11 volunteer, really helped doing so much, had some amazing life challenges, turned them around, and totally out there helping the world in so many great ways. I saw him out there in the world, and I was like, I got to have this guy on. We wound up talking on the phone, and we just kind of hit it off. And some of the things he's doing, I am super jazzed about. Um, and so, Craig, welcome. Thanks, Todd. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about the story, kind of 9-11, because I remember my, you know, people – kind of know where they were if you're around at the time where they were at 9-11. So tell me a little bit. Well, let's back up. Tell me a little bit about your background and then we'll kind of lead up to that. What do you think? That works. Perfect. <laughs> so my background is I've been a carpenter and a mason pretty much my whole life. And uh, that brought me into uh, real estate investing. And um, one of the things that I learned uh, with real estate investing was how to be a, an entrepreneur and look for opportunities everywhere. And uh, with 9-11 gave me an opportunity to, um, to help. And by doing that for literally two days, uh, I ended up developing uh, direct related 9-11 cancer, as well as a few other ailments uh, because of what I did for two days. And my, my story is about how I'm beating all of this because I refuse to give up. I refuse to allow the things that go on in my life to stop me from actually helping people as well as helping myself as, as I tell my story. So tell me something, because a lot of people may not know this, right? Like, I was, I saw when the original Twin Tower, you know, when it came down, I was like, oh my God, you know, and they've really taken a lot off. So what was it like there? Because I think a lot of people may not understand, you know, other than the direct impact of it falling, what the effects were of some of the stuff that had happened there. Like what, what was it like you breathed in, you know, tell me a little bit more about that. So it, it was basically a really bad scene. Right. So you're talking about uh, blocks and blocks of New York City that were completely decimated. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> I don't know what it's like to go to war, but I do know what it's like to to clean up a bombing campaign. Mm. And with that comes a lot of horrific stuff that you store in your head, things that you hope people never have to see. And <clears throat> it played it really plagued my head for a long time. The stuff that I, I witnessed there and the stuff that I saw and it required me to really step up my game mentally to, to get out of the stinking thinking mindset. And when I say stinking thinking, we all have this, the, these stories in our head of why we can't overcome things. And what I've learned over the years is that those stories are emotional attachments to past circumstances. And when we sit in those emotional attachments, we, we harness this chemistry set within. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, we can also control it with our thoughts. And that is what I've done over the past 20, 20 years, um, is to be able to understand what my downfall is. And it's always been me against me. Mm. Speak at convention centers on real estate finance and, and lease options and how to buy houses with credit cards and all of this, all of this really magical stuff that people do now. Um, and I used to get off stage at a, at a convention center and I used to think that I wasn't worthy of the accolades um, or people clapping or, or cheering me on for something. And I, honestly, I used to think I was a piece of garbage because I didn't deal with the emotional attachments that I had to past circumstances in my life. Mm. Once I started, go ahead, I'm sorry. So how did that experience at 9-11 like teach you to kind of look at that? So it was it was the stories that I was telling myself. Um, there was a couple circumstances. I'll give you an example. So it took me it took me. Uh, I was there the third day and the fifth day. 
It took me two days to be able to get over there because, I mean, everything was locked down. Um, boats weren't taking people. There was no – it was just – it was just pure pandemonium and chaos, right? Yeah. For a couple of days originally. When the buildings fell, my wife and I were standing at the edge of the Hudson River, and she literally has photos of the buildings coming down in sequence, like boom, boom, boom. Um, and she has both of them. She has both of them, which is which is, you know, it's kind of horrific all on its own. But what happened was we walked, we walked to uh, the pier over by Liberty State Park. When people were coming off the the boats that were bringing people that just, you know, wandered out of the 9-11 scene that day. And we saw people like all messed up. I mean, you know, just bleeding everywhere and, and soiled everywhere. And... Get? Are you muted? No, go ahead, Craig. Sorry. No, so, and, and, and like I said, I, I was in the middle of uh, two renovations at that point in, in downtown Jersey City. That's where we live. And, you know, I've been on every every kind of construction site from uh, apartment buildings to bridges to building uh, the Battleship Missouri Pier at Pearl Harbor. So I've been on, I've been on multiple construction sites, right? Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know, I need to be there. Not only because it's 9-11. I mean, come on, the World Trade Center's fell right in front of my face. Um, but it was more like, I'd rather be there than, than like somebody that wasn't in construction. Yeah. Little did I know I did not anticipate what I was going to see. Okay. And that, that really, that really brought home to me, like, what am I even doing? <laughs> and there was a lot of people like that too. So I'll give you, I'll give you one quick story, right? Sure. So, I didn't know what buckets, what, what they were doing with buckets, right? Like Home Depot buckets, yep. like, like just empty buckets. And there was hundreds of them on this boat that we were going over, right? And everybody's saying the same thing. Like, what are you going to do with buckets? We're going to this, like these buildings drop. Well, so I, I, as soon as we, we landed over by the, um, the pier, um, I took a bunch of buckets. I couldn't see in front of my face took a bunch of buckets and I'm listening to people. Oh, keep going, keep going, keep going. So as I'm going through the atrium, right? And, and I mean, you're talking about restaurants, decimated, food still on plate, you know, like that kind of stuff. Guys, you know, hugging, crying, laughing. Uh, Cause you hear the weirdest and, and funniest jokes whenever there's like trauma everywhere. Mm. And I walked past and I walked past this room that had a bunch of bags. I didn't even want to know what was in the bags. Right. Mm. So I kept going and, and I approached this knee wall to go out into the street that was completely shattered, decimated, eye beams hanging precariously all over the place. And I had these buckets in front of me, so I can't see in front of me, but I can catch glimpses to the side. So what I did was I took the buckets, I went over the knee wall, and I placed them down. And when I picked myself up, I just looked, and it was, it was kind of like this surreal scenario. It was kind of like, like just devastation that I've never witnessed before. And then as soon as I got to process that, there was this, the alarm horn went off. <laughs> it was kind of like ear piercing. And then all I heard was run. So I followed everybody and ran. And we ran back to the river. Well, long story short, what happened was the front of the building that I was standing in front of kind of gave way a little bit. Went back, went back to where I was and all my buckets were crushed. And it was kind of like that was my introduction to the World Trade Center. It's like it, to to what you said before. It was like a war zone. Seriously. Oh yeah, it's bombing campaign. It's exactly what it was. Oh my god! So you go there, and I remember when when that happened. I was an ICU nurse up in New Haven, which isn't too far from the city. You know, you think about it, it's a couple hours, maybe an hour and a half. Uh, we were like, let's go down there and help because that's what we, you know, that's was our thing and then you are right there basically and you're like let me go and you get there and you're like oh my god so there's trauma and devastation all around you which i can't even imagine you know 9-11 occurred some time ago now and like people i don't know if people forget but Maybe. it's not in our forefront anymore but man that was a time for sure you know yeah, it's de it's definitely in our it's in, it's in our view because we have to deal with uh, mismanaged healthcare, 
Uh, we have to deal with, um, you know, I have uh, four or five certified illnesses um, still battling one. So I don't know if it's going to be certified or they're going to take it away. Uh, but we still can't be seen with doctors and stuff. The, the healthcare for 9-11 responders, volunteers, um, is horrific outside of New York City. So let me ask you a question. So you're there, you're exposed, you know, buildings are just made up of all kinds of things, you know, all the debris, you're breathing all that in, um, and you get sick, right? Um, and a lot of people get sick, have gotten sick from being there, right? So tell me what kind of happened for you. So um, I started getting sick in 2012. Okay. Uh, but before that, I used to tell my wife all the time, I don't know what's wrong with me, but there's something wrong because I shouldn't be in this kind of pain just in everyday existence. Mm -hmm. And in 2012, I was diagnosed with uh, a collapsed lung. Okay. And it was uh, the, small, the small lobe at the bottom of my right lung that collapsed. And it took... Um, five years of being diagnosed with COPD from diagnosed to pneumonia with pleurisy numerous times to in 2016, I was literally sick the whole year. Um, and then in 2017, I was diagnosed with a malignant carcinoid tumor in my right lung between my main part and the mid and lower so they had to, with three procedures, they took out my mid and lower lung as well as the carcinoid tumor. Um, and from all the testing and stuff, and stuff, it was a very rare cancer because carcinoid tumors are usually in your stomach. Wow. And they knew exactly um, where it came from because it's one of the 9-11 cancers. Wow. And for people that don't know, there's a whole, there's a list of ailments that have occurred in or illnesses, cancers, so on that have occurred in people that were first responders or volunteers at 9-11? Yes. Yeah, there's, there's, there's certain classifications um, that are directly linked to the exposure, the air exposure. Wow. Wow. You know, it's funny, not funny, laughing funny. Oh, no, like, it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> like, I was like, oh, my God. Like, when you were telling me this story, I was like, I, I didn't think of it because I, I wasn't, you know, actively involved. And when you told me, I go, oh, my God, this is. And so you're you found, too, that there's been a struggle in getting the help and the, and the volunteers and responders are haven't been getting the help that they the resources they needed in this. Right? I, I, know, I know numerous people right now that had to stop their chemo because they're no longer covered under the health insurance. Wow. Yeah, it, it, it's it's crazy. It, it really is. And it's sad because, you know, in the whole 9-11 community, it's very political mm -hmm. and it's very religious. I mean, there's certain things that you cannot say in a 9-11 community. People will come down on your ass hard. Like I could never say I was a first responder because okay. that's designated for an EMT. That's designated for a fireman. That's designated for a cop. Okay. It took the Justice Department to tell me that I was a 9-11 responder. So if you're not a responder, you're a volunteer. Is that how the classification goes? And if you sit and if you're a volunteer and you would say that you were a first responder, people would shut your ass down quick. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And, and it was like I said, it wasn't until the Justice Department that told me that I was a 9-11 responder that I could say that. Wow. So man, this is this is crazy. Now, are there organizations that are helping these, you know, that that are helping the volunteers and responders currently, or there are there acts, you know, are there things going on to help? So I didn't know anything really about 9-11 until 2016 going into 17. That, mm -hmm. that affected me. Okay. Yeah. People used to tell me all the time, go, go check out these lawyers and all of that. And I was like, I was only there for two days. I mean, there's people there for weeks, months, Right. Right. But but here here's the funny thing. Um, so from what I what I was told is you had to be there 
the, for the first five days, you have to be there for four hours in order to qualify to, I guess, be uh, seen um, to see if you have legitimate illnesses, okay? Four hours. I was there for two days of the first five days. Wow. That changed everything about who I was, what I was thinking about, you know, how, how quick am I going to die? Um, because, I mean, as a 9-11 volunteer slash responder to the World Trade Center, like after cancer doesn't mean anything because you could pop up with another cancer or your pancreas can like shrivel up, your kidneys can fail. There's so many, there's so many different things that people are experiencing right now, 20 plus years after that go in line with all the things that we ingested. And I had, I had a respirator and it didn't do anything. I was in a Tyvek suit, didn't do anything. Wow. So you went in there pretty prepared. And you I, went in, I went in knowing that it was messed up. Okay. But I just didn't know. I just didn't know how messed up. I mean, cause I mean, obviously we're walking into, we're walking into like the trade centers are gone. Like I, I like couldn't even comprehend that. I used to go to the world trade center every month uh, to pay my uh, Citibank bill. Right. Um, I used to go up the elevator escalators, like the massive escalators. I used to grab sushi. I used to grab a newspaper, sit at the bottom, eat my sushi and watch all the ants going up these escalators, man. Thousands at a time. I used to be like, man, I'm glad I lived the life that I live. Wow. To be standing on top of that kind of blew my mind. Jeez. And it's amazing. So years later, you develop cancer. And so what's going, what do you, what's going on? Like, what, what are you thinking? Like what's going, you know, so I I wasn't crazy anymore. I knew that there was something wrong for years. Yeah. Just didn't know what, right. Um, They tell you, you're going to die if you don't do this, this, and this. Hmm. I'm like, I already feel half dead. So, I mean, so they did a, uh, they did a rigid bronchoscopy and a flexible bronchoscopy. And during one of them, I can't remember which one I had first, um, they, they nicked the carcinoid tumor. And that spewed all of this nasty crap into my blood system to where it almost took me out twice in seven days. I was in the hospital. I was in the hospital, you know, getting all of these fluids, getting all of this, all of this medicine to get rid of the crap that was pumping through my body from when they nicked the tumor. Wow. Ended up getting my mid and lower lung removed on a nine-hour surgery. Um, I was one of those people that woke up screaming uh, because my blood pressure dropped and they couldn't give me any more narcotics. Um, so my wife and my brother uh, heard me screaming coming into the uh, recovery room. Uh, for like a long time. <laughs> oh and I don't mind sharing the story because I, I this is me, you know, I'm, I want to share everything about my story. Yeah. Excuse me. So other people know that they're not alone when they're going through things. Um, I'm not on social media to like, look at my bands and look at my Maserati and look, I'm here. I'm here for people to understand that they don't have time. Execute on your ideas Develop things for yourself. We're only here once. This is a one-shot, one-take experience, right? Yeah. Podcast, it's survival mode. Okay. What's going to take us from survival mode into thriving? Well, it's going through all in that. It's going through the nasty stories, man. And I'm a firm believer that you have to go through the nasty stories in order to become a thriver. You know? We're We're only entitled to a certain amount of time here. You know it's so great that you say that because I feel very similar about that. Like, you know, sometimes people view their their circumstances uh-huh. as like, oh, my God. But it's oh, I did. <laughs> you go through the period. Don't get me wrong. But if that. you stay there and like, you know, in this spot, you're like, oh, my God. And then what can I learn from it? And what what can I do? You know, what were some of the big things when you were going through some of this stuff? Like, you know, life short for sure. 
get do what you want to do right you, you mentioned that but were there any other what was a the the key turning was there any one key turning moment or a couple that really kind of where you were like holy cow like that turned it for you there was there was one instance where i was in bed and i was in bed weeks at a time months at a time um and i used to back in the day be a seven figure earner and i wasn't earning anything but debts, I mean, debt, I'm in Time Magazine for being a broke first responder, <laughs> hoping hoping that the government's going to come and save us and help us with our credit card bills. And, you know, and yeah, man, you sit in your thoughts. And I was always like, well, what am I going to leave my daughter? What am I going to leave my wife? I, I'm broken. I, I'm uh, in many different ways. Right. So I had to learn this Internet thing. I had to learn online to be able to survive. I had to, had to understand that um, I needed new skills for myself mm -hmm. because I couldn't go back to being, I, I can't go back to being a, a Mason or a carpenter. There are things that I just physically can't do anymore. Uh, it's not that I don't want to. It's just, you know, I, 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 have, yeah, I, have, I have ghost pains, you know, that like will take me out for a day. Took me out yesterday. They just woke up, couldn't feel my legs, couldn't feel my ribs, couldn't feel. And I'm like, <laughs> I just start smiling. I'm like, ah, okay, it's one going to be one of those days. Gotcha. So let me ask you, what, where are you now with your your kind of health journey? Right, you, you had the you had surgeries, and it seems like you never know where things are going to crop up. Where. Is there a level of uncertainty? Like, where are you right now with your health? So I, I still have, like, my throat will close. Whether I'm eating something or drinking water, it doesn't really matter. It'll just close. The first couple times uh, we, we went to the emergency room, like, in a panic, like, geez, what the hell is going on? Now it's kind of, it's kind of funny in our family. Uh, because when my throat closes, it could be down around a dining room table, right? And my wife and daughter will just be like, oh, it's happening again. And be like, do you want to go? I'll be like, no, nah, I'm okay. They'll just continue their conversation. <laughs> oh, my God. Because there's, not, there's nothing you could do, right? Yeah. Um, my wife and daughter, it breaks my heart. They still walk by me to see if I'm still breathing. That's something that's never going to change. Um, I have... GERDs, uh, ENT, uh, Barrett's esophagus, and it's all linked to sleep apnea. It's all linked to 9-11. Um, heavy, heavy metal deposits, uh, you know, health-wise, battle whatever I can. I eat like crap most of the time, which I'm definitely changing, Um now I'm going back. I'm going back to how I used to be. I used to live in. I used to live in the bush of Jamaica, um, oh. and I made my own potions and concoctions, and, and I veered away from that for years. And I'm getting back. I'm getting back into that. You know, especially getting into the nutraceutical industry. Um, when when our health is when we're ailing, um, we can't be producing in a proper in a proper context, right? Because there's always something here that's blocking us from literally doing everything that we want. And for the longest time, I had all of this stuff in here that was just preventing me. I, I was basically stopping myself. The things that I have learned on this journey have been extremely powerful um, just to be able to create my own mindset. So when somebody I, – I was told I had malignant cancer three times. Wow. They were only right once. So those other two times, I had to correct my chemistry set within because it was kind of like devastating again to hear. Oh, we're going to be treating you for, especially this one, uh, malignant breast cancer. So I've had 15 lipomas taken out of me. I'm going to get my 16th. I got scars all over my body from where it's cut, stitched, glued. Um, 2020, I had a bunch of, a bunch of surgeries and procedures. 2021, I had a knee ablation. It gave me three blood clots that almost took my life again. Oh. So I'm here now as, I guess, a testament to 
just be resilient in your life. Be tenacious. Um, you know, overcome all of the stupid crap that you have in your head of why you can't do things. You know, yeah. that's it. I mean, take yeah. one day at a time, man. You literally have to. <laughs> it's okay not to be okay. Just don't stay there. You know, I stayed there for a while. Yep. Tell me, tell me a little bit about that because every a lot of people that I've interviewed, myself included, we've had these periods where we're like, you know, the fairy came, the crap fairy in our head, right? And and tell me a little bit about that, and then how you got yourself out of that. About just staying in that. that yeah. About you know relationship. A little bit about you were there. And you, you were like, I got to get out of this and how you did it, you know? So there was, I, I do remember one day in particular, right? So I just got done feeling sorry for myself. And, you know, my wife and my daughter are badasses. I mean, they're, they're, they've seen a lot of shit in the last bunch of years. My daughter has seen me sick three quarters of her life. Okay. And you know, seeing seeing all of these things that you go through and watching your family witness these things, like I couldn't take care of myself. Who took care of me? My wife. My wife took care of me for seven years. Wow. Right? And, and she's ending up becoming an RN because of it. In May, she graduates as an RN. Um, nice. My, my daughter, you know, she she's dominating her own mindset. What makes me dominate my mindset? What makes me overcome my stinking thinking is watching them two every day. They never let me have a pity party because I can, if I wanted to, I could really go deep, right? Yeah. What got me What got me out of that particular data that I'm talking about is that I just said, I have to get up, man. I wasn't born to just stay here. And I'm not. I wasn't, I wasn't born to just live here, pay bills, and die. And that's exactly how I was feeling at that time. But only I wasn't paying bills. I was creating bills for my family. Wow. That's powerful. That is powerful. And you decided this, and you're like, because that was one of the things that was really important to me, was like not letting any of this take me to a place of just this place of like despair for a long time. I had to ask better questions. And I tell you, one of the things that I, I really started to do was like, what is this here to teach me? And that was probably one of the most pivotal points for me. And it's easy to get stuck in this victim mindset. Like I had like, Oh my God, this is happening to me. The other thing that I thought too, that, and you mentioned this early, earlier in, in the podcast was that, that life's short. Like I didn't, I don't think I realized it until you face, till you face it. Did you, did you, did that change for you after you had some of these in, encounters? So, <laughs> I laugh because I'm, I'm really thick-headed, okay? Um, there, I, I've had many lives before this whole cancer journey. I should have been dead way longer, right? Yeah. Way years ago. So I, I look at this as like number 3,685 <laughs> chance to like start all over, you know? Yeah. And, and I took it serious, this one I took serious because it was like, you know, I want to see grandkids, you know, I want to see my daughter get married. I want to see her go through all her trials and tribulations. I want to see how she gets out of things. I want to, I want to be with my wife. And yeah. I was sitting, I was sitting in this mindset of woes me. What am I going to leave them? I don't yeah. have enough steaks in the freezer. Now I'm going to die. And it was like, I heard this voice. Get out of bed. <laughs> and and I had and I had these two gentlemen in my head, actually three, in my head from my Aikido days. And it was my sensei and my two senpais who would beat the living daylights out of me. Okay. Yeah. And then be like, get up, get up, stop being a baby, get up, suck up the pain. And I'd just keep them in my head. 
just constantly every day. Get up, get up, get up. That's all I would hear. Get up, you loser. Get up, like just, just get up. Do it again. And and I consistently did that. And I was listening to a buddy of mine, Kirk Ashley. Um, great videos. Listening to him and and just listening to Joe Dispenza. First time I got turned on to Joe Dispenza. Right? How to turn? How to turn that? life around okay by actually placing yourself into an environment that is in your future so it's what i do with coaching people right it's like i listen to people all the time talk about when they get married they're going to be happy when they when they're not sick they're going to be happy when they're rich they're going to be happy and it was like okay well why not focus on being happy now before the event right and when you can do that you change that chemistry set within. So you have this heart and brain coherence. I was fighting that and fighting that and fighting that. I was like, there's no way that this stuff works. There's no way that this is going to happen for me. There's no way that, and then it did. And then it did. And, and, you know, I'm here. I sit three hours a day meditating and works for me. You know, I send, I send people these, these, you know, the silver method, um, just listening to things with about Joe Dispenza. I do two, I do two really quick meditations three times a day. And it's 20 minutes of silver and then 20 minutes of this Joe Dispenza meditation. Do it three times a day religiously. And what that does is it keeps me sharp. Mm-hmm. It keeps me, it keeps me understanding the subconscious thoughts that drive us 95% of everything that we do is our subconscious behavior. So we have to go back to those old stories of why I couldn't figure my way out of this stuff. And it was all going back to rip all the band-aids off that I had to finally be able to say, hey, you know what? I have all of these things that happened to me. We all do. Nobody laughs or cries in a different language, right? So it doesn't matter if you're white, you're black, you're orange, you're red, you're green. It doesn't matter. We're all human beings, right? So we all have the same capacity to think the same way. It's just taught in a different way. It's taught through different cultures. It's taught through, and you really need to understand yourself to move from this point forward, to move out of your circumstance, to move into discipline. And I think that's what the world is missing right now is the discipline of becoming themselves, everybody, instead of what society says they have to be. Right there is the gem. That right there was the gem to become themselves instead of, you know, what society wants them to be. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I was like, oh, my God. And it's funny. When I was diagnosed, it took me a day or two to process before I posted something on social media. I had a friend help me out because I was just in a show, you know. And all this outpouring of people and all these things. And somebody sent me a message like you should watch and listen to Joe Dispenza. Never heard of the gentleman before. And I did. And I was like, I was very, very impressed. And I just started listening to a lot of this stuff. So it's, it's uh, pretty cool that you mentioned some of his work. Um, and um, that is, that is, that is great. But yeah, people should work on becoming more of who they are. Right. And taking that, and I love what you said, you know, at the beginning of the podcast, you're like, you know, just get out there and do it, you know, get out there. I, I say this to myself, do it ugly. It, it, it may be ugly. Just do it, do it and do it ugly. And I got a face for radio and I do this shit every day. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's awesome. So I know that we were, you know, the whole 9-11 thing totally intrigued me. And then we were starting to talk and you're really involved in nutraceuticals and stuff like that. Share a little bit more, share a little bit about what that is, you know, what it is and really what you've been doing. So I started, I started in the CBD industry Mm -hmm. and I learned that CBD, the CBD industry is a scam. And I don't mean that CBD is a scam. I mean, most of the products are a scam because you could put two drops of CBD into something and have 98% filler of crap. And, you know, that bottle production wise costs, you know, five to seven bucks and they're selling it for $140. Mm-hmm. 
and nobody's really getting any benefits from it. So I did that for a few years and I understood um, how being a manufacturer doesn't mean that you know how to sell. So I became on, I became on this sales team for this manufacturer um, that really turned to crap. And I put too many people on too many pedestals. And it wasn't fair to them, and it also wasn't fair to me. What I realized is I needed to become the company to be able to control everything, right? So nutraceuticals is really important because we don't ingest the vitamins and minerals that we need to sustain our body, okay? So as I was walking away from the CBD industry, and I burned a lot of bridges because I I utilized a lot of resources that I had, for a company that I was not fully vested in for myself. I was a part of it. I wasn't the company. I learned that you needed to be the manufacturer. You needed to be the sales team. You needed to be the the producer of your boxes. Like like everything, you have to become your own company. So I started learning about the mushroom industry. And I started to realize that we're more mushroom. Humans are more mushroom than we are vegetable and animal. So I started doing experiments with mushrooms on myself because all of these products that I'm developing are for myself first, because as Les Brown likes to say, I'm beating this chalk outline. (laughs) (laughs) Stay ahead of the chalk outline and you're beautiful. (laughs) And, And it's like, you know, just understanding the industry, understanding the food industry, FDA does not do what we think it does. Um, there, there are just, there's so many rules and regulations to, to food, to minerals, to vitamins that people need to learn about. Like just because it says natural doesn't mean it's good for you. <laughs> it does not mean, cause there's a lot of natural ingredients that are garbage and you don't right. want to be ingesting them, but you know, it's, it's understanding labeling. It's understanding all of this stuff. So, you know, um, fast forward to my buddy Magisha. Kid reaches out to me, wants to start a program, a food program. Well, what food program? Um, what can we grow to sustain people in, in a fashion that's cheap, but nutritious? So we're developing a uh, mushroom as well as microgreens and vegetable gardens in uh, a Nakavali refugee settlement in Uganda. That's my first, that's my first real like launch project with Magisha, right? I have a friend of mine in the Yucatan kind of similar does the same kind of stuff helping villagers and and all this stuff right so it's like how can we develop a product to where you could send somebody a pill and that's mushrooms that's mushrooms and microgreens to get you know all these dense minerals and and vitamins into the hands of people that actually need them because there's some people around the world man that don't eat right don't eat and i know we're blessed we're blessed in this country. We like pigs. <laughs> we can eat 24 hours a day, seven days a week for five hours. You know, I mean. Unbelievable. And there's people that do not have food in other countries. And, and you know, they need nutrients. And um, they need food. And I think that's fantastic that you're doing that. Yeah, I, I'm just so excited. I really am. To be a part of this product, to be a part of this project. I'm so excited because... There, there's there's ways of getting food to people, okay? And then there's ways of giving them nutrients that are actually going to sustain them. And I believe what we're creating uh, just in general is going to do that. Wow. Wow. That's fantastic. So is it, have, how far are you along in the process? Do you have... Uh, so okay. it was really cool because he sent me a video. He sent me a video today. We did a Zoom call this morning. We, we, we try to do Zoom calls every couple of days just to keep you know, keep advised of what's going on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he sent me this little seven-minute video of two guys just breaking the earth up, man, just breaking it up, ready to put a vegetable garden in, you know? Um, and, and it just made my it just made my heart warm, man. You know, to be to to be able to be humbled enough to be a part of this project, to be able to like just put things together and and help people with their lives uh, before I depart, before I'm skipping, you know, <laughs> somewhere else. <laughs> and, you know, like I said, 9-11, we never know, man. 
I know I have so many people that passed away. You know, they were fine one day and then the next day they just didn't wake up. So let me ask you a question because I see the, 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 you know, the energy and the excitement that you have for helping these people, right? Um, do you think it's stronger since your experience um, with the 9-11 experience? you think that really kind of brought it out more? It sounds like you had a helping mentality before because obviously you went to you went into New York and like, let me help them, right? But do you feel like you're, all the stuff that has occurred in your world until this moment has helped you to be like, I want to help more people at, at a deeper level. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. And I, and I see what it's done. I, I've seen what this has done to my wife, how she wants to help people. And I see what it's done to my child. And she wants to help everybody, you know, um, in the coaching world, I wanted to help everybody, but realize I couldn't because there's certain people, there's, there's certain people that say they want help. But when it comes really deep down to it, they like to stay in their comfort zone because it's comfortable. You know, when you're changing, you got to step, you know, you got to get radically uncomfortable with yourself. Yeah. You know? And yeah. and before even this, this journey even started, I got radically uncomfortable with psychedelics. And that I would say psychedelics has really helped me become the person that I am right now. Wow. So tell me, you know, it's starting to make its, you know, way into the media. You hear a lot more people talking about psychedelics. Um, Johns Hopkins did a study, um, and I've listened to some other podcasts. I did a study too. <laughs> um, for those who ever ever might have listened to Jordan Peterson, he did it. He had the conductor of the study on on his podcast um, and talk about it quite a bit. So tell me a little bit about your knowledge and understanding of the psychedelics today. So just through my experience, right? Like we, we used to do mescaline when we were kids, right? In high school and stuff like that. I would never tell people to do that. Not at all. Right. Just stuff that we did. Um, growing up, I had some incidences where, you know, I, I needed to get out of my head. Long story short, I was in Mexico. I was living in Mexico in Yucatan, and I met up with this one dude, and um, I had just left the United States, gave everything I owned away, gave the keys to houses, vehicles, and just split. Um, wanted to start a different chapter of my life, raise my daughter in a different culture. And my wife, the economy crashed in 2008, January of 2009. We were... Going across the airport in Houston, going to Merida, Mexico, start our new life. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, we ended up opening up a couple uh, restaurants and stuff. But in the process, um, I met somebody in one of my restaurants, got me into reading about a whole bunch of things and listening about a whole bu bunch of things. And I was very intrigued about the rabbit hole of life, right? Long story short, I went down this rabbit hole, uh, became a bank whistleblower because like, I, got, like, I was really angry. And he's like, he's telling me and he's laughing. He's like, there's only one thing that's going to make you sane again. And that's DMT. And I was like, I don't even know what DMT is. So I started researching DMT. And I started doing all this research on DMT. And then one day I fly home to the United States. I just walked up to a buddy of mine. And he's like, man, have you ever heard of something called DMT? He's like, I had a whole bunch of this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> he did he gave me this he gave me this 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 tin that you put mints in i had a whole tin of dmt then he gave me the maoi inhibitor same amount and i was like wow i feel extremely lucky <laughs> took me about three years to do all of it i mean like i became obsessed in understanding who I was. And what I started to realize was that my mind was not working the way I thought it should. And with DMT, it literally, they call it the spirit molecule for a reason. Um, it was some of the most profound experiences mentally I've ever had. And again, these are all hallucinations in your head, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I, I would suggest to anybody that's going through any kind of, you know, you're going to die by Tuesday kind of illnesses 
to try to find some DMT. Because what that has what that has done for me is it has helped me understand that we're here for a quick minute, man. And you better you better raise raise the bar up on your game. Because if you're not, what are you here for? So for those who don't know what DMT is, can you tell people what, what that actually is? Sure, it's dimethyltryptamine. It's what your pineal gland produces um, for your vivid dreams, uh, for, you know, just exploring, exploring, you know, your personality. Uh, I listen to people all the time talk about, oh, you should try DMT. Uh, DMT is going to try you because here's the thing, right? You cannot run from DMT. DMT is going to show you exactly who you are and you better be prepared for it. And the thing that really messes people up, it's very religious people that get messed up from DMT because it goes against everything that they're taught. And it, it took me a while to find out that DMT is actually what they give the Jesuits at the Vatican when they graduate. And that's where that whole red pill, blue pill thing came from, uh, was from dimethyltryptamine. What, from Ma The Matrix, the movie? Yeah, it's, <laughs> well, when you graduate the Vatican, the way it was explained to me, when you graduate the Vatican, it's like, okay, you, you have your book. Here's the Bible. Well, you have this stuff. <laughs> Keep one because if you try the other, it's going to change how you look at the other one. Wow. That's the whole red pill, blue pill thing. Yeah, and for those that are, you know, definitely do your research. Absolutely. You know. Absolutely. Don't listen to this crazy lunatic that's on. <laughs> you know, definitely, you know, look at, you know, seek medical professionals or things of that nature on your own issues. We're not making any claims here. We need to None. put that disclaimer that we're not making any suggestions for health. But for sure, um, it's I, I've heard a lot about now. What's the difference between this and the the mushrooms that they were talking about? you know, that they talk about. So, uh, okay. So some people are going to be like, oh, this guy's nuts. But here, here's the thing with dimethyltryptamine, you're, you're actually blasting off. Okay. You're crossing over, you're crossing over into an entirely different dimension in your head. Mm -hmm. okay? The thing about DMT, which blows people's minds away is if you do it or your brother does it or your sister does it or your grandmother does it or my wife, my kid, any. We all have the same similar hallucinations. So it's kind of like, well, how did that happen? How can we all have the same similar hallucinations? And what I suggest people to do if you want to do research is to go to YouTube, look up things they don't want you to know, DMT. And I'll give you a little four-minute four minute thing about, you know, <laughs> just all the experiences that you could have on DMT. Now, psilocybin mushrooms, a little bit different, okay? Uh, it's more earthly. It gives you, it gives you this, this very good understanding of depression, anxiety. Uh, that's why Silicon Valley has been doing shrooms forever. They've been doing LSD forever. It's about stepping up your programming. It's about getting your files here correct, right? Uh, and that's what psychedelics does. That's why that's why it is so illegal. Okay. And there's so much there's so much like, oh, science hasn't studied it yet. Well, you know what? I know thousands of people that have studied it and they're all fine. <laughs> you know, there's microdosing that you could do. Um, so you don't feel the effects, but you get the full effects for your for your mental capacity, for for your body. Um, like I said before. Mushrooms, we're more mushroom than we are vegetable and, and as well as animal. Mm -hmm. So it's like, well, how, how come all of this stuff has never been taught to us? Yeah. Like, why? Well, if you look at shamanism, right? Shamanism has been around forever. But now, you know, with shamanism comes pharmaceuticals. And pharmaceuticals now have little, little pills that you could take instead of the natural stuff. Wow. Yeah, there's I've noticed that there's a lot lot more people researching it. There's a lot going on um in the world. I've you know, I've listened to some podcasts from some people that I I listen to in the health and well-being industry and like I said, um I know Johns Hopkins, I think they looked at 
the psilocybin side of it. Um, but there's, there's like so much more, there's coaching that goes alongside it. Cause it's something that, you, you know, that they need some guidance, you know what I mean? No, you definitely do. You, you definitely you need do. some guidance and some safety parameters. And I think in the U S they're, I don't think they're as far ahead as they are in other countries, for sure. Um, well, definitely in other countries, you, you can have access to this stuff. Like we were doing, um, we were with the Wichita Indians in Mexico, and we were doing peyote ceremonies. Mm -hmm. um, that's pretty profound as well, you know, and it all comes from a cactus. Yeah. So what inspired you to kind of look at this a little further? Was it something you've always been interested in or something that you kind of learned through your journey? I've always been into martial arts ever since I was a little kid. My mother was sick for 16 years when I was a kid until she passed away. So mm -hmm. there was always that there was always that struggle. There was always that fight that I used to see in her every day. Um, and I knew it was a mental game ever since I was a little kid. And like I said, I had some experiences as a little kid that little kids shouldn't have to go through. And it was, I was always chasing myself. Um, and one of the things that I did realize was how do I get out of my head? How do I get all, how do I get out of my head? And, and I lived in Jamaica for like six months in the bush, no electricity, no water. And the person that I was living with was savants. And he was teaching me martial arts at an entirely different level. It was all, it was all, all this. You know, it was all this. Like we played patty cake for hours, little child's game. And then what he would do is we'd be playing patty cake and then he'd tell me to close my eyes. When I closed my eyes and we were still doing this, he was introducing swords. Mm. And that blew me away. I watched, I watched him do things that the average human can't do. And I just used to watch him in awe. And he got me, he got me one time. I had to go to the dentist. And we were training for a while. And he's like, listen, this is what I want you to do. No medication at all. Get your teeth drilled. And I did. And I did. And it blew me away. All through the mental. All through the mental. You could stare. You could stare. And don't get me wrong. This is not for everybody. This is, this is for people that really want to get out of their head by getting into their head. Right. So it's kind of like an oxymoron. You have to get into your head to get out of it. You have to fix all the programming and files that you have in your head in order to produce different results for yourself. Wow. That's hard. It's hard for people to like, you know, bad stories. They have to relive them. You know, and it's psychiatrists, psychologists, don't relive them. Go you know. me personally, what got me out of my, my head was getting into it and understanding my stories of why I did certain things in the parameters of the basics of what I had to learn from. I realized that I was taught different things. So it started with martial arts, huh? When I was a little kid. Yeah. We used to go to, uh, I used to live in North Bergen and then we moved to Cliffside and we used to go to a place called journal square and the Stanley theater. And it was all Bruce Lee movies, all, you know, Bruce Lee movies at the time. And, you know, we were playing with nunchucks when we were kids, stars, right? Like, just learning. And my backyard was Hudson County Park, which was hundreds of acres where we used to just, like, be wild, play cowboys and Indians and make things to, like, you know, arrows, bows. Like, just, just it was a really cool, at that point, really good childhood to learn and develop. You know, we'd be fishing at the park all the time. And, you know, we, we, we had beat up all the time you know, stitches, broken bones, you know, and just keep developing more. And I look back now, 57, and I'm like, man, we were crazy kids. <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny that you say that. Like, I was very similar. Like, I used to watch, I don't know if you remember, I don't even know if you could find them anymore. Remember those those kung fu movies that were on where the lips didn't match? Yeah. Like, I used to watch those all the time. I was fascinated with Bruce Lee and I wanted to get involved with karate. You know what I mean? That's the Ronin walking through the paddy fields. And like the Kung Fu moves, like, and I would always was like fascinated with like that energy and the chi and all of that. And I always thought it was mental. And, you know, I, I knew this early on in my, my life, you know, I had a lot of trauma growing up 
lot of stuff. And I spent a lot of time in my head. And when I was in my head in not a good way, I wasn't able to be present for other people because I was so darn in my head. Yeah. And that brings nothing but self defeating, you know, like you kick your own ass. <laughs> and I'll tell you, like, and, and that's why I, I love having you on. I was like, the same thing. Like, I was so dying to, like, learn how to get out of my head. And the, some of the biggest challenges happen to be some of the greatest gifts. If you take action, like, I took action a lot. Like, you know, like, I went and sought help. I sought the best kinds of um things with trauma and stuff like that. And then even with this, you know, brain tumor diagnosis, I was like, okay, what can I do? What kinds of things can I, you know, learn from? And now let me, let me ask you a question. What did sure. you feel like when he said, okay, you got a brain tumor? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, part of, part of my French, the first thing that went into my head was I'm fucked. Like what? <laughs> You can bleep that out. I'm sorry, but no, like, and that's all right. I said, I and I'm a nurse. Like you talked about your, you know, I'm a I'm a registered nurse. I've seen a, a lot of death and dying and all kinds of stuff for sure. I was a medic in the military, so when I I'll never forget, and I share this openly a, a lot in my story. Um. I went to the ER and I was doing mixed martial arts. I was doing Krav Maga. I was training for, there was a guy coming from South Africa who had developed this other program and I was going to do it. And I had lost my vision for, not lost it, but like from me to my screen, it went blurry. I thought it was the mask, dehydrated, whatever. I called my doctor. He's like, you know, call your eye doctor. And they're like, well, you know, it could be an ocular migraine. I don't get headaches unless I don't have coffee. So honestly, I, I run, I just doing all this stuff. And I went to see my doctor and he fi finally says, he goes, well, we'll do the carotid test because of health insurance. This is the way they'll pay. Cause you know, I'm 50, I was 48, could be having a stroke. I had healthy people get strokes, believe it or not. So he goes, if something weird happens, just go to the ER. I said, all right. So I went for a run. I live on the lake. I went for like my traditional three mile run. I came out of the shower. I was going to watch a zoom and my hand felt a little heavy. I was like, oh, weird. I was like looking at it. So I called my girlfriend. I said, I'm just going to run this small hospital. And I figured they'd say I was working too hard. You know what I mean? Because I was work. You know, I was like, I work a lot. I like, you know, it's one of the things I was doing. So I go there. They do the stroke workup. They put me in the scanner. And they're like, oh, the neurologist, they, they, they have all the stuff here in this tube. And they're like, neurologist wants to do, uh, um, they want to add contrast. I go, this can't be good. So I get back to the ER bay and I'll never forget this. The nurse and the and the doctor is a female nurse, female doctor come in and they go, you know, you're not going crazy. You got a marble sized tumor in your head. And I was like, what? I was like, you're you're joking. And I was like, I looked up and I said, this sucks. That was exactly what I said. There was like tears coming out, and I was like, it wasn't like a. It was just like. Wow. Yeah, I don't mean I don't mean to laugh, but no, you know, no, because it, it is. I was like, holy crap! Like, and you know what they said to me, and I'm so mindful of it now, but I can't help it. They looked at me and they go, "I'm sorry." People say that a lot because you don't know what to say, right? Well, you know what the guy told me the first time? What in front of my wife and then eleven year old daughter? No, she was ten. Um, yeah, Mr. Sikowski, you have a malignant tumor in your lung. That's what he told me in front of my wife and my daughter. Wow. I almost throat punched them. I almost picked them up and pinned them against the wall. Wow. I was like, how can you be so callous in front of, in front of, you know, my wife and my little girl? Yeah. I've run, I've run into people in the medical industry that shouldn't be in the medical industry or should be trained differently. Yeah. It, and, and I've learned like, cause I would say that too, not in a like dismissive way, but more not your example, but what they said to me, like, I'm sorry. Cause you don't know what to say. 
But now I say, like, I can't imagine it's got to be, like, so hard. That's what, that's what I say because that's been my experience with it. And from that moment on, like, you know, my girlfriend calls me. She was working. She goes, everything. I said, no, nah, it's not good. She, I said, not good. And and she comes here and then like you know to the hospital and you know it was like all kinds of stuff, but I'll tell you something. What shifted for me, like the doctor that saw me, you know, all this. The people that brought me to the tests, or the aide that came in to the room in the hospital, they're like, "How you doing?" And I just talk. All I wanted to do was just have a conversation and just talk to people like just like yeah just a regular like yeah this is hard nothing you know and i'll never forget that just having a normal conversation with somebody and somebody just listening to you listening to you that's you that's, know? that's the biggest thing man just having somebody to listen yeah i i, I chat with matt ode all the time you know, yeah. send them messages and stuff. Like, he's such an empowering, empowering person, right? Yeah. Like, I, I sent him a message in, in his group. It was like, yesterday, man, it was just, yesterday my body just crashed. It just, I just woke up and I couldn't feel things and it felt like crap. And and I realized, you know, I was just doing too much. So I took the day off. Yeah. Watched, watched didn't do anything business-wise. I just just shut down and was like we'll start again tomorrow <laughs> if we wake up tomorrow <laughs> and you know there's a dichotomy because like think about it right like we want to get out of our put one foot in front of the other right we want to get out and live life right but there's also there's times that you need to take to breathe and to care for yourself and to do that. And, you know, Matt, the person, the person that Craig's talking about was in an earlier podcast. I don't have it off the top, but go into show notes. He was on here. Such an amazing young man. Um, amazing story as well. And you bring up a good point. Like there's days that you have tough days, right. And having a, a tribe, you know, having somebody to talk to somebody that will listen. Um, a lot of times people, and I've shared this a couple of times, you know, everyone like puts down social media a little bit like, oh, my God, we're just all sucked into it. And I think too much of anything's not good. Sure. But I have to say, when I shared my story on, on Facebook, just how people surrounded me and really helped support me was great. But also finding a group like I, I there was in a couple of brain tumor groups. I still contribute to this day. Um the people in the middle of the night, like I'm going through this, like in somebody real time, wherever the world will help respond. That's super helpful for people, you know? And if you're going through a specific challenge, whatever it may be for you, find a group, find a tribe, find somebody that you could, you could chat to, you know, has that been something that you found helpful? Yeah. Cause it's helped me. It's helped me along the way. Um, just listening, you know, when I'm speaking, Somebody's listening when they're speaking. I'm listening. We all we all go through things every day, man. You know, I, I was in that why me mindset for so long. And then and then it was like, why not me? It happens to everybody else. So why not me? And then starting to realize more and more about my life and the things that I've done. It's like, yeah, it should be me. Because yeah. I'm not going down. I'm not going down like a little bitch. I'm going out. <laughs> Going out kicking and screaming, man. You know, and I know, I know, my voice can be heard for people that don't have a voice. Because I mean, social media—you got to put your shit out there, right? Yeah. Put put everything out there. Like I'll I'll send pictures. Like I'm going in for another procedure. I'll take a picture. Like stand up again, over and over again. Just keep standing up. People be like, "Why do you post that shit?" Because that one person that sends me into my DM. You know what? I love the fact that you tell your story. I was in this really miserable situation. Physically, I couldn't get out of it. And I was going to off myself. And then I saw your story and I was like, this guy can do it. I can do it. That's the reason why I do it. 
because I know I know all about anxiety and depression. I know all about the, the just the, the mindset of what it can do if you don't have somebody to talk to. If you don't have somebody to listen to. If you don't have somebody to cry on their shoulder. I lost a lot of friends during this cancer journey. You know, because I wasn't fun anymore. But yeah. I've also I've also met a lot of people that are really pissed off that I made it because I'm coming for them. What do you mean? A lot of some people that have, you know really, like really screwed yeah. me over, you know, and uh, coming at them with a smile on my face, and they're running tremendously. <laughs> so. Craig, man, I so appreciate you sharing. Like we had, we kind of had a cool rap session here, man. Raw, raw and real. We touched on a, a bunch of different topics for sure. I appreciate it, man. Any final words for somebody who may be going through a hard time, you know, just kind of struggling um, that just, you know, you share just now. Cause I, I feel the same way you do. I share my story frequently because you never know who may need to hear it and who it may help but any final words craig yeah i would i would tell people if they're going through anxiety depression illness you're exactly where you're supposed to be right now and from this point forward is where you're really going to step up your game um understand you know that we're all going through something there isn't one person right now that isn't going through something right nobody laughs or cries in a different language Saddle up. Got to saddle up. You got to buckle in because if you're going to fight for your life, you might as well fight for the whole thing. Fight for this. This right here is the most important. If you can control your emotions to any circumstance, like I said, I was told two more times I had malignant cancer and nothing even phased me. That's the mindset that you have to develop for yourself. Because if you can control your emotions, you control the game. And the game's all about winning. Love it, man. Love it. Hey, I appreciate you coming on, man. Thank you so much. And, and uh, we'll have to have a part two for sure, man. We'll have to we'll have to have a round two with Craig. How's that sound, man? Thank you so much for the opportunity, man. Anytime, brother. Anytime. Thanks.